Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. We're back today for another update on Israel's war with Hamas, the expanding war. Of course, we're going to have Joe Trusman. He's back with us, my friend and colleague at FDD. He's a research analyst at FDD's Long War Journal, where he focuses primarily on Palestinian militant groups and Hezbollah. And then today, Benham Ben Talablu, also my friend and colleague, is a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. And so much more. Benham is a wealth of knowledge on Iran, on the militant groups operating in the region, on weapons systems. Benham, Joe, great to have you back on. Looking forward to today's discussion. Always a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Hey, Bill. Hey, Joe. The pleasure is ours, Benham. We're going to start uh, as we have been. Uh, Joe's going to give us a just a brief update on where we are today, Monday, November 13th. Joe, where is the ground incursion into Gaza? Where does that stand? What type of progress has been made? What type of challenges have the IDF experienced? And then you could go beyond that and give us a quick update on the other fronts as well. Yeah, just I'll briefly mention uh, just a few things. Yeah, so Israel continues to, uh, with their ground operation, uh, they have Gaza City encircled. Uh, specifically, their 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 main target, I think, is the um, Shifa Hospital, which has served as a command center uh for hamas and other palestinian armed groups so they've uh there's a lot of fighting in and around that area of that hospital so uh it's a, it's going to be i think that's going to be a goal uh for the israelis too to get in there and find out what what, what can they find in there right uh, are there leaders are there fighters still there uh it's uh it's unclear but uh that's one goal uh but then uh there are other important fronts uh just like you, you kind of mentioned uh you know, the, the Lebanon, for example, the fighting there has continued. And uh, unfortunately, I see it getting worse uh, over the last few days. Um, there appears to, appears to be more uh, cross-border attacks uh, in the north than there is in the south, especially this morning and today. So um, that's concerning. And then, of course, uh, we have the Shiite uh, militias or the Iran-backed militias uh in in Syria and Iraq attacking uh, American uh, troops and American positions. And of course, there's always the, the Houthis in Yemen uh, making claims of attacks against uh, Israel, uh, especially in southern Israel over the last few days. So uh, there are a lot of active fronts. Also, also, and I don't I can't can't forget to mention is the West Bank. Now, the violence has continued there, of course, uh, for the last two and a half years, a, a huge uptick in violence. Um, I don't see an explosion of a, a new active front there right now uh but uh there's still there's still violence uh going on there but it's not uh anything more than what we used to, that we saw uh pre-october 7th and joe really quickly the israel the idf has established two humanitarian corridors and they're doing uh i guess you would call it a tactical pause for a couple hours a day um to allow civilians uh palestinian civilians in the north to move south to avoid uh the conflict zone there do you have an understanding of how many uh palestinians are um 
you taking advantage of this and moving south? And has Hamas been preventing them from leaving northern or northern Gaza as they desire um, the um, you basically use the civilians as human shields? Because, of course, when the body count runs up, it it's really good for Hamas's propaganda. Right. So uh, it's it's difficult to say how many people, how many Palestinians. I, I don't have that data. Uh, I, I don't know. However, they are there are Palestinians taking advantage of it. All right. So for for instance, earlier today. Uh, between 10 o'clock and two o'clock local time, the Israelis, um, they established this, uh, uh, this buffer zone, right. Or this corridor, right. Uh, they call it, like you're saying, a, a tactical pause. And then it's just for, uh, specifically for the, for Palestinians for, to move from North to South. Uh, and there's, uh, there's two reasons why the IDF is doing this first and foremost of course they want us they do they they distinguish between they do distinguish between civilians and uh terrorists right so they want as many civilians out of the northern gaza strip because that's where they're operating and then uh by doing this it also helps them it frees their hands right to attack hamas to attack the infrastructure of palestinian terrorist organizations so this is another very important reason why they're doing this it benefits it benefits everyone it benefits palestinian civilians benefits the idf right uh of course you know and hamas doesn't like this i mean they're used they use civilians as cover they use civilian infrastructure as as a, as a, to, to hide behind right so um i'm not surprised and there is evidence that hamas is using human shields and not only in this conflict but uh in many in years past right so um so yeah the, again but this is a very complicated situation Unfortunately, but at least uh, we are seeing evidence that uh, the IDF is trying, doing their best in evacuating civilians from the north to the south, or facilitating that, rather. The IDF is certainly in a in a lose lose situation in its invasion with Gaza, at least when it comes to the press and the the narrative, right? And it, it's just mm -hmm, so difficult, yeah. and you you it's frustrating. We watch them make an effort to limit civilian casualties, and yet. Um, you know, it's just people forget the what it is. It's a war. You know, I, I go back to this and I said this on BBC last night. You know, the Israelis would not have invaded Gaza if it wasn't attacked and had 1,200 of its people killed and more than 260 hostages taken. Um, Hamas could have, if, if it really cared about the civilians in um, in Gaza, its leaders could surrender. It can it can conduct an unconditional surrender. Its fighters can surrender. And, you know, and, and a new government, a new, you know, a new security situation could be established. That is certainly an option. But Hamas, they don't want that. And it's very, very clear that they are seeking to drive up the death toll among its own people because they just don't care about them. But we'll um, move on to the next issue. Um, since we spoke in last, since we, our last episode of Generation Jihad, there's been two U.S. airstrikes in Syria. One late last Thursday and another late yesterday. Um, that would be uh, Sunday the twelfth. Uh, so, and and two different sets of messages uh, sent here um, on Thursday. The U.S. repeated what it said on the first strike. So, the first two times the U.S. targeted um, inside of Syria and eastern Syria, basically they hit um, weapons uh, and munitions storage depots. No civilian, or there was no 
no casualties reported among either the IRGC or the militias, uh, no civilian casualties as well. These appeared to be empty sites. And the, the first two times the U.S. military said, you know, look, we're we're doing this reluctantly. They they're doing it for deterrence reasons and basically begged the Iranians and the their their militia proxies to not launch further strikes because we don't seek, quote, escalation. This time around yesterday, the U.S. hit two facilities. One was a command and control center, which was also described as a um, as a safe house for the militias and six to seven militia fighters were reported killed. And then they also hit another weapons and munitions storage depot, which apparently had some pretty big secondary explosions. And there was no talk of deterrence, no talk of the of um, de-escalation and whatnot. So I, know, I detected a uh, a, a little change of, uh, of of tone from the U.S. military. Maybe they're starting to realize that um, they're not. It's uh, begging for deterrence, begging for de-escalation is actually seen as a sign of weakness in that part of world of the world, and not a sign of strength. So, Benham, what are the implications here of these U.S. strikes? Do you think that the U.S. is doing enough to? deter these uh, Iran and its militias to end the attacks on the U.S. military bases. I've recorded at least uh, um, 46 strikes. There may have been more. Or um, or they, do you think they're still going to be emboldened? Um, are these strikes enough? Is, is launching strikes in Syria, which is a, basically a free fire zone where there's very few implications of launching attacks, is that is that going to get the message across or, or does more need to be done? Uh, you know, sadly, m more needs to be done. This is this is an area where I think we've become an irritant to folks because we've said it so much. But uh, you know, the, the truth will set you free. In in this instance, it is true that President Biden has used force more quantitatively than his predecessor, which had a very high bar for the threshold for the use of force, which was the loss of American life. So, on the net, it is good that we are responding to things short of things that take life. So we are responding to drone attacks, successful or not, we're making interceptions, there's all of that. But geography matters. As you just mentioned, Syria is a free fire zone. There is no political cost to responding in Syria. So even these strikes that you string together, the three different US military actions following the October 7 terror attacks by Hamas that followed the wave of October 17 Shia militia rocket drone and mortar attacks on our positions in Iraq and our positions in Syria, all of that is necessary but not sufficient to even begin to change the equation. Now, I respect the changing kind of graduated escalation that uh, you know, the Defense Department seems to be going for, you know, first going for facilities, then perhaps going for people, then changing their messaging on it. But I think the adversary understands that this is scalable, and therefore they will not, for lack of a better word, be quote-unquote deterred. And I also think the language and the sophistication around the language of what it means to deter has actually been quite, with immense respect to people here, uh, it, quite poor. Deterrence is not like turning on and off a light switch. We didn't get here by accident. We didn't get to the point where the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism uh, has been able to train, arm, and equip different Iraqi and Syrian militias that operate on both sides of that border like it doesn't even exist and fire uh, uh, in the dozens of times, you know, anywhere from 40 to 50, there's some varying open source numbers on this uh, in, in three and a half weeks and still only get three of these. And I would still, with respect to the last one, still say pinprick. And the reason I say that is because 
the nature of the first two strikes plus the what people saw on social media which was the compound or they heard on social media i should say which was the compounding uh, explosions that followed the us use of force in the most recent one um led people to believe yes this was a pretty significant weapon storage depot so long as we continue to react to these strikes uh we are going to fail to deter them if the goal of some of these strikes is to handicap the regime is to uh destroy some of the arsenals well these need to be ha- happening independent of, Ira- of iran backed attacks on us meaning regardless of their fire we should be kinetically targeting their arsenals in iraq and syria full stop second of all we need to be responding against the point of origin which as you mentioned rightly is iraq and we need to respond not just to the launch locations but for places where it's fire and forget we need to be able to hold those militias accountable and as we've said on this show before given that some of the iraqi shia militias have militias of their own and front groups of their own now meaning the proxy has a proxy of itself um that 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 tells you we need to play this this russian nesting dolls game and we need to do it on steroids and this thing that this impression of resolve that we give the american audience by responding in syria and taking it from iraq uh is unhelpful for the american audience to know what's going on and it's unhelpful to change the local balance of power and the local equation so we need more strikes we need to be uh proactive not reactive and we need to actually make sure that they're in the right geography uh and all of these three things together are necessary too but they can still be drowned out by exogenous things like press releases that circumscribe what we're doing or limit what we're doing uh or even fundamentally policy the lack of an iraq policy or still a permissive iran policy can still drown out positive changes like those three things i mentioned that you that could be adopted with the aim of improving the stickiness of deterrence in this equation. Yes, so much to digest there and I'll, I'll just touch on you know one or two parts and I think you really hit on it. I I, I can't remember where I said this and it, I can't remember if I said it on Generation Jihad or elsewhere, but it seems to me that the the messaging from the Pentagon at least the first two times was more directed at um the US public sure. and it was directed at our enemies um and i find that rather worrying because if it was directed at our enemies it was not having the, the desired effect and the second thing you know look for someone like me and i i get it i'm a knuckle dragger but i think actions speak louder than words here i would say as little as possible while and and you're right you would need to launch strikes in meaningful places in iraq or dare i say possibly in iran where this all originates the only message i would be sending to the iranians was would be something like do you like your oil production capacity or refinement capacity do you like that navy that you have because you might not have them tomorrow if this continues that would be the only message that would be that i would be uttering and of course there would be international condemnation and talks of warmongering but you know the problem is and, and you know a fundamental problem i think that exists in all of this is that some of those us bases are very exposed and in yes. other the and the other bases where there is more us troops they're largely dependent on the iraqi particularly in syria but in iraq we're dependent on the iraqis and we're worried about the iraqis turning on us i mean anyone who saw those pictures of secretary of state blinken going into iraq at night while wearing external body armor 
I mean, if that isn't a message of weakness, of I don't trust you, my ally Iraq, um, you know, so, you know, I, I just watched the messaging coming out of state, coming out of um, the Department of Defense, and it's all wrong. The Iranians, they don't, they don't, we don't speak the same language as them, um, and we pay the price because of it fundamentally yes it's 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 a signaling problem you know what we think is toughness is, is weakness and vice versa and the the importance of the american domestic audience which i'm not saying the american domestic audience should not be important the u.s taxpayer should be primus into paris but to have to craft your defense policy based on signaling back home that you're not starting a war right. when you're really just trying to stop taking it 43 to 1 in terms of your response ratio, right. <laughs> uh, that 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 seems to be a, a, a bit misguided. Uh, Iraq is one gigantic hangover. You know it. You lived it. You know all the LWJ fans know it. They lived it. Um, but, one gigantic, but, one gigantic that hangover. That is fantastic. One gi- gigantic hangover. You know you can't get DC to focus on this properly. But just on the basis, I will say this, and this is this is why I would I would endorse all of what you said except yet the public messaging about striking in Iran. Ultimately, we know that's the eye of the octopus. Ultimately, we know that's where all these orders are coming on down from. I have no problem with using the military tool, but first I would like to perfect it uh, outside of Iranian territory because this is one social science experiment we have not ever run before in the 43, 44-year history of the Islamic Republic of inside Iran doing these things overtly and kinetically. And before we ramble on that hornet's nest, we need to understand that these guys respond to pressure with pressure of their own. Even they're responding to rocket attacks with rocket attacks of their own. So before we open up that hornet's nest, I'd like us to perfect this here. And my fear is we still fear what perfecting it looks like on the Iraq-Syria border. And I just want to add this one quote about uh, the commander of the IRGC Aerospace Force, I think earlier this year in an interview, they do an interview every January after the missile barrage. They fired at us in two positions in Iraq after the U.S. killing of Soleimani uh, in January 2020. And in this interview, he was talking about U.S. bases in the region as being like lumps of meat under the teeth. And in particular, he's talking about Anil Assad and Al-Harir and Tom. And while there may be more, you know, sea uh, rams in some of these areas, in general, we cannot have an exposed posture. And I know you've said this uh, a million times, Bill, so forgive me for the paraphrase, but option A, where uh, we're all in, or option C, where we're all out, those are more sustainable options. Uh, because letting your troops get exposed to kind of persistent indirect fire and taking in dozens and dozens of traumatic brain injuries after traumatic brain injury. And responding as offhandedly as we do uh, is going to lead the regime not just to see these bases as meat under teeth, but trying to crunch on these bases as meat under teeth. So I think the way we're set up, if there are no changes to the force posture, there will be more, not less attacks, regardless of our response ratio in the short term. Yeah, I, I concur. Joe, you have a lot of experience following the, these groups. Do you Is what the U.S. is communicating both via its public statements as well as um, its response, military response, is that viewed as strength or weakness in that part of the world? Right. So um, I do have a follow-up question for Benna, but I'll just say very quickly that, I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? Uh, that it's it's weakness. Uh, we can just see that. We see it already. The, uh, these militias continue to attack. 
uh, even right after these, the uh, Americans, you know, strike these these warehouses right over command centers. Uh, so it's there's no deterrence right uh, right now. They're, they don't uh, they don't see uh, what the what the Americans are doing as, as anything uh, that's uh, that's going to scare them right to stop or deter them. And and speaking of deterring, because we kind of talked about it earlier, this question for Benham or maybe even you, Bill, but. I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about this for a while now, especially now, um, you know, right after you kind of mentioned it, Benham, uh, the, the, the drone strike on uh, Soleimani and uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis um, and, and, and their entourage, don't you think that that was deterred the, you know, the Qais al-Khazali type guys, the, the militias, the leaders, don't you think that that kind of put a, you know, scare into them to, to um, not to just well, actually, yeah, to to not only just cease, but at least temporarily cease attacks or operations against the Americans, because it just seems to me that now they're they're not they're not there's no scare they're not scared right they're not deterred and of course I'm not um, trying to advocate for advocate for you know drone strikes against leaders of militias, but I'm just saying I'm just trying to you know I'm just thinking about what's happened in the past right and I think that that really had a a, a, a deterrent type effect on these groups uh, back back when it happened I'm just curious what what your thought is on on, on all that venom partially but this reminds me of the the title of the Michael Hayden book, The Playing to the Edge, because even in that scenario, and I actually remember documenting this in a, in a piece in 2020, I think, for LWJ about the rise in Iran-backed militia attacks, and we have a table. And unfortunately, this is not to discredit that attack, but it is to show what we are up against. January 2020 was one of the highest months ever for Iran-backed militia attacks. And that on top of starting in May 2019, the U.S., the Iranian desire to use the Iraqi proxies to fire at our positions in Iraq, compounded with the desire for quote-unquote hard revenge after Soleimani, that led to some crazy peaks in violence uh, by the Iran-backed militias in Iraq. So yes, it was a deterrent message, but it so spooked them that they felt that they have to respond. And this is not for us to say that if you don't respond, there will be strikes. If you if you do respond, there will be strikes. But it is to understand that they have an incentive for the strikes, sometimes to understand what that incentive is, and to be able to play the waiting game. To think that there would be one magic bullet, and I'm not saying you're saying that there would be one magic bullet, but to think that there would be one magic bullet, and that these guys, would, would, would the ret- networks would roll up overnight, I think the capabilities they have, the networks they have, are far from that today. So, yes, I think it's sent a such a unique psychological message to the regime leadership. And it was unlike anything that the U.S. had ever done in its history, perhaps with the exception of the tail end of the Iran-Iraq war, some of the things Bill was alluding to. But they assessed, and unfortunately rightly, that that would be a flash in the pan. And they took the risk of of significant escalation, both from them overtly with the ballistic missile barrages and them via indirect proxy via at least 10 or 12 uh, different rocket attacks that month, making it one of the highest months ever in the in in 2020 for violence against us in Iraq. Um, they took the risk that it would not be sustained. That the political will that got us to the point of okay, green light against Soleimani could not be sustained after the use of force. The adversary understands the politics of our use of force too well now, such that in even the right conditions where it may happen. 
uh, we're hoping for deterrence, yes or no. And I think they do see a story of change over time. And they have that longer runway, um, which will lead to the data, which will lead to someone like Jake Sullivan saying, anytime there's a lull in the data, that their peace has, that, that they, had, they have bought peace, which is, again, fundamentally wrong. But it is, it, it, it is a heck of a predicament. Uh, and I just wanted to paint it as like honestly and openly as possible because I remember submitting that data to LWJ, that piece is there, tracking Iran-backed Shia militia attacks in Iraq. There's a huge table. Um, and having folks understand that spike but still understand the value of the Soleimani strike, we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time on these things. And, and if I could add to that, I, I do concur, Benham. That was the strike against Soleimani and, and uh, Mohandas. It was a good start. But we didn't have the will to follow it through. You needed to take out Akram al Kabi. You needed to take out Mustafa al Shabani and, you know, Case Ghazali. And, you know, we go down the list of some of these key militia leaders who may as well be called IRGC operatives at this point. Certainly Abu Mohandas all, um, uh, Abu uh, Mohandas certainly was an IRGC office. That's what his designation described him as. Um, you know, so but we weren't willing to go down that road. Remember, after the the strike that killed Soleimani, Iran launched Venom. You'll know the answer to this. Uh, a number of ballistic militias against the U.S. Yeah, base. In, yeah. How much was it? Uh, sixteen reportedly. Sixteen. Yeah, against Al Ain Al Assad Air Base in Anbar Province, and Trump and I think over twenty Americans were wounded. You know, like you mentioned before, as in a lot of these other attacks, concussions and traumatic brain injuries. Um, of of U.S. troops and Trump's response was, "We're good. That's good. We did what we had to do. Now you stop." And then we saw the, the that was the Iranian response, and of course the Iranian response was the other militias conducted attack. We weren't willing to escalate, and uh, not under the Trump administration, even as audacious as that attack against uh, Soleimani and Mohandas um, was. You know, he viewed it. He he viewed it as a silver bullet, and the reality is, is you got to empty the arsenal, reload it, and come back again if you want to be serious. I also want to clarify too when I'm talking about hitting targets inside of Iran. I'm going to be the last person here to advocate for opening. And after what I've witnessed of U.S. commitment in Iraq, and particularly in Afghanistan, how we abandoned an ally, the U.S. needs to think very, very carefully about how it wants to use force and what countries it wants to engage in military operations against. Because our problem is, and we we talked it at the on the micro level here, right? The targeting of uh, and killing of Mohandas and and of Soleimani. Sure, that was great. Um, I don't know if I ever mentioned this here on this program, but I call it McWar. What we want, we want to pull through the drive-thru, order our war, get out, chomp on it in the car, throw the wrapper out, out the window, drive home and all happy and fun. And meanwhile, our enemies are going to the gourmet restaurant with a seven-course buff, you know, meal. Um, they're in it for the long haul. And, and we're, we're, we want the fast food option for these wars. And that's no way to win them. Iran and our advert, the Taliban, all of our adversaries are committed to their cause and they're in it. They're in it in this for the long haul. And when we're not, they detect that they view that as that's what they view as weakness and they seize upon it. Bill, you have to write that book, Mick War. Yeah, <laughs> I, 
I use that with a couple of friends and, you know, in the military, they love it. They just every, whenever I mentioned, but it's, it's so, tr- I mean, it's to me, it's, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, self aggrandizing my own, you know, whatever that is analogy or whatever, but it fits right. We, we operate on election election cycles and they operate on campaign cycles, but their campaign cycle is however long it takes. Iran's, you know, some of these militias, as we discussed in the last program, right, were formed during the Iran-Iraq war. Hezbollah formed in 19, what, 83, 84, whatever the date is. Um, Iran-Iraq war was the 1990s. Then Bader, you know, Bader was formed in that period. The militia, many of the militias we're encountering in Iraq and Syria today were formed in 2003, right? This is, they're playing a long game. We're not playing that game. So a single strike here, a single strike here, they're willing to weather those blows because they know that we aren't in it to win it. And that's all there is to it. Right. I, I do want to just uh, speak of uh, Soleimani. I did want to ask another quick question, Venom. Um, do you think, you know, and of course I've thought, I'm sure many people have thought this, but um, when Soleimani was eliminated, do you think that weakened the IRGC just because, you know, you know, you know there's a lot like, for for the Iranian regime and its allies, you know, Soleimani is, is, is a legend, of course. But in your eyes, do you see that the IRGC, the Quds Force, and the um, the overall re- uh, axis of resistance, when Soleimani was taken out, do you think that that weakened them? I, I think it significantly weakened them in the sense that it provided one of the first ever times they have experienced coordination problems due to the lack of personnel on their side. You know, he was, you, you guys know better than I, you've been following and writing about this in LWJ. He was the connective tissue, not just professionally, but personally, with so many of these organs and organizations in Iraq and, and, and in Syria as well. And, you know, Bill just talked about that that history. He His, his personal biography participated in that history. Um, you, you can't replace not just that kind of capability, but charisma, which on a battlefield can, can make all the difference, particularly for the hybrid warfare battlefields uh, of, you know, half conventional, half asymmetric, half terror, half high tech, half low tech. I know that's a bunch of halves. My math is not that bad, but it's bad. Um, He provided them a capability and an ease with which to effectuate a policy that it doesn't mean that they can no longer effectuate, but it simply means that the transaction cost for doing it has gone up. You know, there was early reporting on this by AP, um, about the nature of Ghani's visits to Baghdad in the you know one and a half years after he had come in following 2020, and it looked like things were shaky then. Uh, you know there were some uh, other folks in the region who, after the March quote unquote uh, Saudi Iranian peace deal, uh, believed that some Iran some Iran backed proxies in, in in Iraq would be subject to principal agent problems, meaning the agents, the the militias would still want to fire uh, on. Uh, uh, on some of these targets uh, and, and not listen to like the quote-unquote halt order uh, of their patron. So I think in terms of logistics, in terms of connective tissue, uh, in terms of ease of operations, he was irreplaceable. And you can never not prove a negative, meaning that there have been some think tankers who served in the Bush, Obama, and Trump White Houses, and they've come out. And I think one who served in the in the in the, in the Bush administration, he, he said this publicly, but I won't share his name, but he did say this publicly, is that there was talk about you know going after Soleimani as early as 2007. So hypothetically, uh, had that happened, 
the wars of the Middle East would have looked a lot different. And the casualty account of the U.S. and the coalition and, and Israel uh, would have looked a lot different uh, as well. So you can never prove a negative. Uh, but in this instance, if you just go back and you run this counterfactual, okay, the Middle East, 20, 2007 to present, and you imagine that without Soleimani, um, you could see a significant waning uh, of the Iranian you know, kinetic capability uh, against uh, some of our forces there. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything else they haven't put in place, like Bill was talking about. There is the personal and the professional. It doesn't mean that those other things that they haven't put in place don't work. The whole purpose of the axis of resistance is that these tentacles can move. The whole purpose of the proxy strategy is that it is the interest of the local actor married with the interest of the foreign patron. Um, and in this case, the foreign patron provides the capability and the local actor has the intention and you marry these two and you get this effective strategy. So um, this this does provide caution for uh, you know for those who would think that you know all you need to do is cut off you know, the head of the snake or uh, it, it, you got to go after this animal on both ends. And um, you know, someone who followed several targeted killing campaigns uh, in Pakistan and Afghanistan against Al Qaeda's leadership, which we found out had to also expand to Yemen and Somalia and other places. The answer is yes and no. Yes. It was important to take out Soleimani. I completely agree with you, Benham. He was and he was more than just a tactician and he and an organizer. He was he became a myth into himself. I mean, I always go back to looking at those pictures from uh, 2014 onward when the um, Shia militia commanders meeting with him. Um, and the Newsweek covers then. <laughs> right. The, you know, they were just you could tell they desired to be in his presence. It was to them. It was like meeting the rock star or or meeting the pope. Um, look, I can't prove this, but I've seen enough pictures of uh, Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis that he dressed like Suleimani. He cut his hair like Suleimani. I'm convinced he dyed his beard to look like Suleimani's. <laughs> I'm not kidding. There's pictures of this out there where I actually look at them and I have to do a double take. If I just looked at them real quickly, I would think I was looking at um, Soleimani and his uh, security body double. Um, so he was extremely important. But the problem is, I think his successor has done a pretty decent job. Would anyone disagree with me on that one? I think he's got the resources, you know, he, yeah. he's got, and, he's and got the resources to so work. Charisma lacks where we're, 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 capability may take over. Right. And the fact exactly. That and get 95 billion helps. It does. And so sure he may not. And, and, but you know what? Maybe his charisma develops over time. Maybe his, you know, his organizational skills develop over time. But the reality is, is they built such an organization that it pretty much runs on its own. And all you probably, the IRGC needed was a, con I'm guessing the Iranians do aren't smart enough to not put all of their eggs in one basket. Um, sure. They recognize the importance of Suleiman. Look, Soleimani could go directly to to Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, and and just get whatever, pretty much whatever he wants, right? I'm certain of that. Can his successor do that, or or, or his successor's successor do that? Maybe not today, but maybe over time, given the achievements. The problem with with targeted killing is if you're not willing to do it in a rapid enough fashion and get enough of the of the leadership that matters, 
that it's not going to work in, in in our drone campaign in uh, in Pakistan, particularly where I'll, and then also they're bleeding in Afghanistan. We weren't we killed a lot of them. I mean, we killed, you know, but we didn't kill Zawahiri and we didn't kill um, Osama bin Laden, not until 2011. Right. But Al Qaeda had a deep enough bench. We killed their number threes. We could call it your general manager. We killed their military commanders and whatnot. But we didn't kill. They they had such an enough of a, a deep enough bench. That's the State Department's term, not mine. Um, that they were able to replace them, and and they had st- these leaders had staffs, and these people were waging jihad. Many of them with resumes for decades, and and who were important in their own right, and were waiting for the opportunity. And once we stopped. Once we stopped that campaign, which pretty much around 2014, it started tapering off. Al-Qaeda was able to regenerate that leadership. Zawahiri took control from bin Laden. Sure, it had a setback in, in Iraq and Syria with the split between the Al-Nusra Front and the Islamic State in Iraq. And and sure, it led to the creation. But they're still there. And Afghanistan's under Taliban control now. And Mali and Somalia are looking pretty darn good for for al-qaeda right now and and even though the islamic state is a competing it is another jihadist force out there you know just going after leaders killing one of them it's good it hurts in the short term i am certain the rgc and iran were scrambling to because it wasn't unex- it wasn't like he retired um you know it wasn't like they were planned they planned for it for him to to go that on that date but they certainly at some point had to be prepared for him to be replaced. So I'll, I'll, I'll end my uh, filibuster on targeted killing there. And, and Can I ask th- you guys a question on that? Yeah, absolutely. Not, not to make the filibuster longer, but again, I haven't looked at this, but is there a way to compare and contrast whatever you may define as effectiveness of the targeted killing of the U.S. against AQ and again of Israel against Hamas? Uh, that would be an interesting study to run. You know, how did they do it? Like with what means, what was the goal? Was it to go after number one or the number three? Was it decapitate the snake or like impede the the flow of information and capability from the rank and file to the top? Uh, what, was there a more effective strategy for how one does it than the other? I'm just you know thinking out loud here, um, but it's just I don't know if, anyone, if you guys have looked at that or if, if this is I mean something that we borrow from or they borrow from in Israel, but I, I could speak to the U.S. Uh, uh, and then I'll let Joe comment on on Hamas and other groups. Yeah, I mean the U.S. believed that going after what they called the legacy leaders, it was of Al Qaeda, and you'll still see like this is what where Joe Biden, President Biden, is you know stands up and says, "Look, there was only one Al Qaeda leader in Afghanistan, and we killed him. That was Zawahiri in 2021, right? Um, or actually it was 22. Um, but that's just so." It's a complete misunderstanding. You have to kill the leadership. You got to get those middle managers. Joe and I talked about this. I've talked about this a, a lot. Um, they're really important because they're the ones who are going to replace. And they're also that connective tissue between the leadership and the the um, the fighters on the ground. Right. So you're talking your battalion commanders, which is what they would call them, or you know, the heads of the Shora members, the heads of the military, the heads of the communications. Um, how can you detect this that the, that there's been? I mean, obviously, drop in attacks would be one way of. But who knows? That may not may or may not be true. Um, seeing uh, degradation of propaganda and communications within the group, inability to appoint new leaders. Um, those are all metrics that you can use. 
um, defections from the groups, right? Joining other groups, uh, things like that will will tell you. Now, as far as what is Israel's view on that, like I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to Joe on that and just say that you know I think that they would have to have a similar strategy of going after not just the top guys and they're important. Don't get me wrong, but like you know the IRGC was always more than just. Qasem Soleimani, right? There's, you know, I've looked at the designations. There's guys whose names are not household names or not even known within the, you know, the, 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 whatever community we are, right? The terrorism, wherever you put Iran into that block, right? And I've looked at these designations and said, you know what? That guy looks pretty damn important. You know, here's the guy who was coordinating Iran's um, support for the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Oh, and by the way, he's now their new, um, he's now the head of Quds Force, right? Um, I looked at him a decade ago and saying, you know, this guy's interesting, right? This is an interesting job this guy has. So if you're not going after those guys while you're going after Qasem Soleimani, you're just kind of kicking the can down the road, right? You're just, you're chipping away at the problem and organizations like the IRGC or Al-Qaeda or Hamas or Hezbollah, they can weather losses as long as they're, you know, as long as they're not critical and and, and as important as, and again, as Sumani was to the IRGC, to, to Quds Force, he wasn't, it wasn't founded by him and it wasn't going to die with him. That's up now, Joe. That's your uh, opportunity to talk about Israel. Yeah, story. yeah. I was gonna say, um, yeah, you're right. Uh, I agree with what you're saying. As far as Hamas is concerned, um, you know, I think the Israelis learned uh, that you know that yeah, targeted killing can be effective, but it's not always effective, right? So, uh, like in the early 2000s or throughout 2000s, the Israelis they hammered Hamas, they hammered their leadership, uh, and they took out uh, like. Uh, um, Yassin, for example, and then uh, Jabari, and then uh, so on and so forth, these, these Hamas leaders, but then they were just being replaced, right? So, um, and now today we have Yahya Sinwar, who's probably the most powerful, at least the top two, maybe three member uh, leaders of Hamas ever, right? So, um, so, but he's, you know, he's, he's still around. So, uh, and but yeah, but then the Israelis have also taken out uh, you know guys underneath uh, engineers, for example, engineers that work on rockets, that work on drones. That's important. Commanders um, of uh, so-called elite units, the, the Nukba units that Hamas has. So uh, those are important targets as well. Uh, but also sometimes things can backfire uh, when uh, the Israelis took about took out uh, Abbas Musawi, the former Secretary General of Hezbollah. You know, look who replaced him, Hassan Nasrallah. You know, so it's um, <clears throat> so it doesn't always work out. You know, the uh, just taking out a leader. So I think that's important to note. I think the Israelis have learned that, and that's why you don't see it nearly as much. I mean, obviously, in a time of war with the Israelis. Uh, in regards to Israelis, yeah, they do take out guys, but generally during like general times, like when there's not an active conflict, you don't see the Israelis taking out um, uh, leaders of like Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, um, because I think they've learned from past strikes 
There are some occasions that we've seen it in, uh, I think it was 2019. There was a Islamic Jihad commander. It was either 20, yeah, it was 2019 where he kept firing rockets. All right. At Israel. Uh, so Israel took him out. Uh, and, uh, but those are, you know, they're just happens. It doesn't happen much. So anyways, I think the Israelis have learned about targeted strikes that they're not always effective. I think that's, that's the biggest point I, I want to make here. Yeah. And in Israel's, this is Israel's opportunity to dismantle Hamas because they're going to be in there. And, but the, I'm going to have to, they're going to be cautioned. They, they need to take out the top leadership outside of Gaza as well. And that, if that's all done as a holistic effort, they can't have success against Hamas because right now they're taking out, as you noted, battalion commanders, engineers, bomb makers, um, you know, the clerks, the financial guys who are there. Um, dare you know, look, Hamas is right. The should they go after the members of the um, the you know, the propaganda people from the health ministries and things like that? These are the people that make Hamas run, and this is Israel's opportunity to go after them. They're not going to get a second chance, so if they don't do it now, it's just Hamas is going to perpetuate, right? When you're taking out fighters, when you're taking out low-level commanders, when you're taking out mid-level commanders, when you're taking out key leaders all at the same time, at some point that stresses out the group. Yeah, yeah. It's uh yeah, if 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 Israel says the goal is to dismantle Hamas in Gaza, I I just can't imagine them not going after the leadership or the the Hamas's leadership staying in place, right? If if uh, with a so-called dismantled Hamas, it, it doesn't work like that. Just like you're saying, and there's Hamas leadership abroad in Qatar and Turkey, uh, especially those areas. Uh, so this is definitely going to be a long uh, campaign, I would say, if if Israel is going to stick with it and you know destroy Hamas or dismantle Hamas. All right, let's uh, we 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 I think we beat that uh, horse to death. Um, let's let's move on. Let's there's been a string of Houthi attacks against um, Houthis, otherwise known as Ansar Allah. Um, it is a not an Iranian proxy. I describe it as a, an Iranian ally or they've been co-opted by Iran. The Houthis weren't created by Iran, but they've been they share an ideology and the Iranians have basically taken them under their wing and supported them. Um, so in one of these, they've used drones, they've used cruise missiles and they, in, I believe the previous attack, um, not the last one, they used ballistic missiles as well. Benham, you, uh, know quite a bit about this, um, the use of ballistic missiles. What does this mean? Um, talk a little bit about the Houthis capabilities and, um, Israel's abilities to counter them. Sure, this is this is dangerous because, uh, in essence, we have the Houthis, uh, which are a, a I'll frame it this way, part of this constellation of proxies that the regime has either created in places like Iraq or Lebanon or in places like Gaza with Hamas and Houthis in Yemen. They've co-opted a cause and brought them under their wing through sustained uh, political and material support, and that material support has really come. Uh, since the, the the war in Yemen, since the Houthis took over Sana'a, the capital, in 2014, in the form of long-range strike technology, drones, uh, missiles, precision strike technology, uh, precision-guided munitions, uh, and uh, ballistic missiles. And to date, the Houthis are the only 
partner or proxy of Iran with medium-range nuclear-capable ballistic missiles. Uh, and I'll get into this in a second because the strikes that we saw on Riyadh, uh, even towards Mecca, uh, strikes towards Yanbu, uh in 2017-2018 were short-range ballistic missiles. And I'm using the military terminology here, which is for under 1,000 kilometers, over 300, under 1,000. Uh, and, and those were things I had the, the pleasure of going to the, the Joint Base on Acostia Bowling exhibit in 2018-19. And you get to stand next to one of these things. It's a, it's a modified Scud. It's finless. It's quite big and still short range. The Houthis have medium range uh, ballistic missiles. And for the first time ever, they fired one in August 2019 towards Damam in eastern province of Saudi Arabia. Uh, it flew, I think, between 1,200 and 1,400 kilometers, depending on the, the point of firing. And then they called that the Burkhan 3, or they, and then they renamed it the Zulfagar, and that was pulled away. It wasn't used again. Then in overland attacks in February 2022, they fired it at uh, U.S. positions, even bases, even in a, an airport uh, uh, at the UAE. Fortunately, those were intercepted. I think it was the first field use of THAAD uh, that intercepted this, uh, this ballistic missile. Uh, and they fired it in a kind of combined arms operation with land attack cruise missiles, some of which the Houthis have had since 2017, uh, as well as uh, with drones. And you've seen Houthi drone power grow consistently alongside missile, cruise, and ballistic power. Um, but then in 2023, September, one month before the, the terror attack uh, against Israel, every September, the Houthis put on a big military parade about the anniversary of their conquest. Uh, and the start of the military operations. And every September, they roll out on a bunch of trucks, all of their military capabilities and what, what is new. And in 2022, they showed a lot of shorter range precision strike stuff, things that Iran also hadn't given to other proxies yet. But this year in September, I believe they showcased a missile they call the Tufan, which is a medium range nuclear capable liquid propellant ballistic missile. It's basically a repainted bad ballistic missile, which is one of Iran's 2,000-kilometer uh, uh, flying ballistic missiles. This one, we believe, can go 1,800 to 2,000 kilometers. It has the same kind of baby bottle, triconic warhead, same fin structure, uh, same kind of yellow liquid propellant plume after the launch. Uh, and in essence, this is what we believe uh, was fired uh, at Israel towards a lot, uh, we believe. Uh, this, I also believe, was used in the first operation uh, where I believe uh, the U.S., uh, using those Aegis ballistic missile destroyers, uh, fired an SM-2 uh, against that munition. But they're also employing this combined arms approach. And uh, in 2017, the first time ever, LWJ documented that the Houthis had an intent to intervene in a war between Israel and the Palestinians or Israel and Hezbollah. Uh, it was brushed off. 2019, Houthi officials again re-upped this threat. It was brushed off. If you remember, either in 2019 or 2020, even Bibi's plane, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's plane, had to take an alternate route, I think, to go to the UAE or to go to another Arab country in the Persian Gulf because of the potential for Houthi missile trajectory over the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Um, and now they're making good on this threat. They're not going to... Uh, expend the firepower, in my view, at the rate that we're seeing the firepower be expended by the proxies in Iraq and Syria. But this is an entirely new equation. It is more proof of this ring of fire theory that you've heard people talk about, where the Iranians are 
not just having proxies, but proxies with long-range strike capabilities all around Israel. And it's, comp- it's again, it's another complicating factor designed to slow the war effort, designed to erode public morale for the war effort uh, by the Israelis in Gaza against Hamas. And again, military tools towards a political aim. The Houthis are not trying to score battlefield victory against the IDF. They are trying to hinder the fighting spirit behind them to create the terror with the potential for casualties in a casualty-averse society, uh, and then say that this could be multiplied by 10 if the conflict continues. So you've seen the Houthis uh, not just fire these things against the uh, Saudis first, then the Emiratis, now the Israelis. They also recently shot an, uh, a U.S. drone out of the sky about a week ago. Uh, and so they're also now adapting this uh, Shia militia playbook, which is to say that they are firing on uh, the, on U.S. assets in the hopes of also having the U.S. come in to constrain uh, Israel. So Iran is bringing different elements of its axis of resistance online using whatever long-range strike capabilities they have. Again, noting that the Houthis have by far and away the most advanced one, despite this kind of distance between them, between patron and proxy. Uh, and I think this is, again, a, a telltale sign of the future. There will be more, not less, long-range strike technologies in the hands of, uh, of proxies and non-state actors. There will be more uh, indirect fire and multi-directional fire in future Middle Eastern wars. And ballistic and air, aerial defense is going to have to play an even greater role in the force protection of any army uh, operating in any theater in the Middle East as Iran is set to, uh, you know, continue to be using these assets. So again, this is all stuff that is scaling up in real time. And we're kind of in the hypothesis phase of it right now. Yeah, it's interesting. They're forcing the Israelis to, obviously, they're going to have to, not that the Israelis wouldn't have resources deployed, but they have to redouble their efforts, right, to prevent attacks coming from this area. I think it also adds another complication regionally, um, the, the Saudis. I mean, if the Saudis are intercepting uh, missiles fired by the Houthis, it can be perceived as the Saudis are protecting the Israelis. Now, look, they're the Saudis, and a missile's heading your way from Yemen. Well, you've been under attack before. You're going to want to intercept those things. How do you know it's not? It's 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 slated to land in Israel and it's not slated to go somewhere else before it reaches its destination. Um, so I think it also puts a, an element of political pressure on the Saudis, and that certainly feeds into weakening the Saudis in the Arab world and strengthening strengthening the Iranians. Let's uh, take a look now at the um, what's happening in northern Israel and in southern Lebanon. Um, the Hezbollah clearly has been stepping up its attacks over the, the I think, since we last spoke, Joe. Would you agree with that? Tell us what's happening. Yeah, there. so yeah, there have been more attacks, especially today. Uh, um, uh, cross-border attacks, right? Uh, and uh, more than I think there have been in, in Gaza, compared in Gaza and uh, southern Israel. So, which is interesting. It's just a trend, um, a concerning trend, a developing trend. I'm noticing something else that was really interesting. It kind of goes back to what Benham was talking about earlier, sort of. But, but um, last week, forgive me, I don't know if it, I can't remember if it was Thursday or Friday. A drone. Uh, the, uh, exploded or hit a hit near a school in southern Israel in Elat, and at first I thought it was from the Houthis, but appears and the IDF um, said that it was a drone that came from I think from 
uh, from Syria. It wasn't Syria. The, yeah, they said it was yeah, Syria. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Forgive me. It was just so much going on, trying to remember everything. And the and then the day after, right? Uh, there was um, there was an attack in Syria, and then all of a sudden we hear that Hezbollah Hezbollah lost seven members of its uh, seven uh, seven of its members, and Nasrallah in Syria. Uh, yeah. In Syria, yes. I'm sorry. So. So this basically what what's happening here is that even though things are happening in in Lebanon, right, and uh, southern Lebanon, northern Israel, between these two actors, between Israel and Hezbollah, it, it, there's still other things happening, uh, on you know in other countries, right, uh, b- between the two groups, between the two two actors. So and then last week there was a um, there was, I guess, there was a report about uh, Hezbollah attempting an attack in Brazil against uh, a Jew- uh, either, I think it was a Jewish target. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't super specific, but so anyway, the point being is that just because these two actors are, are you know, most of the action is uh, the, most of the action is happening between in, in Lebanon, southern Lebanon, and, and northern Israel, it leak, it's leaking out, right? It's happening in other areas, in Syria, and in now in Brazil. So um, this is all very interesting, I think, uh, but of course, it's very dangerous. And this is not even a full-blown war, right? A full-blown conflict between the two. So uh, I think that's another reason why people are very concerned about things just uh, an all-out war between Israel and Hezbollah. Yeah, and, and Benham, like, this is this is the axis, axis. This is the axis of resistance strategy of Iran, right? You got attacks coming from Yemen. You got attacks coming from Syria. You got attacks coming from Lebanon. You got Shia militias in Iraq and Syria starting to bear down on the U.S. Would you agree that that this is what it looks like? And it's really um, hasn't been dialed up, right? No, this is this is the potential for them to to scale it up. And, and we've seen, uh, despite uh, tons of the cross-border stuff, Hezbollah still very gradually scale it up because again when you talk about this axis of resistance despite the houthis having some of these more advanced capabilities and despite there being proxies older than hezbollah such as Badr in iraq um the hezbollah remains the crown jewel in some ways with the irgc Quds force and with or without Soleimani, it's the connective tissue uh between uh the houthis uh between most of the arab proxies and the irgc Quds force uh, and has also posed thus far the most successful conventional deterrent uh, against Israel, against any kind of overt kinetic attack by the IDF or IAF on Iran's nuclear facilities. So it makes most sense that out of all the Iran-backed proxies in the region, uh, Hezbollah is taking the page from Khamenei when you saw in the Nasrallah speech recently, where he also supported the October 7 attacks, but then also tried to distance himself from it to buy space to avoid that kind of kinetic uh, response. But also they are subject to the same pressures. And it's not, the, the again, just like the language like deterrence has been poor in D.C., the language about having Hezbollah, quote unquote, enter the fray, I have to say with respect, has also been a little bit poor. It's not that drone attacks and anti-tank weapons don't matter, but it's also not that Hezbollah isn't scaling up like with the drone attack that Joe just mentioned, or with the greater quantity of fire on the northern border. The fact that this isn't yet a third Lebanon war, but the fact that the IDF spokesperson does have to come out and say the things that he's been saying, especially uh, things that we heard this Sunday, uh, and the fact that you have had major populations try to move from the north, uh, all while the most heavy parts of the Hezbollah arsenal, the Fateh 110s, 
the the Zelzal 2 rockets and the converted Zelzal 2s have not been 100% brought online yet. And it is this closer range, shorter range stuff, stuff that they can even fire kind of parallel um, versus on a lofter trajectory for range. This is all proof that they're saving Hezbollah. The greater the Hezbollah involvement, the more keen you would, the the greater the Hezbollah involvement, the more a sense of worry you could see by Iran. The lesser the Hezbollah involvement, the kind of the more content with bringing on different elements of this proxy network online. Uh, They're not going to sit on the sidelines and watch Hamas get destroyed, but I think also they have an incentive to try to conserve their firepower. And so compared to the other militias, you've seen the scale up been slower, but that doesn't mean, as Joe just mentioned, that the scale up has not been any less lethal. And understanding this fine line uh, between Hezbollah's involvement really will give you knowledge about the catch-22 that Iran is in. Because the more of these proxies you bring online, the greater the potential for each of these proxies to face their own Vietnam if Israel or America does decide to respond to a, the point of origin, or B, to help change that deterrence equation in a place outside of Gaza. Yeah, it's, um, I, I I think that's right. I mean, the way you explain that, uh, Benham, right? Like all of these, all these militias, they're chipping in, but they're not fully committing their forces, whether they do at some point, that's everyone's fear here, right? Because that certainly will spark a regional, a wider regional war i have no doubt of that but like right now they're just doing enough to keep israel guessing keep it keep everyone guessing here um last quick talk topic we'll uh, talk about here um hamas they certainly have a sophisticated and integrated anti-tank force um i've seen more than enough videos of israeli armor and really armored bulldozers and tanks and armored vehicles being hit by Hamas anti-tank rocket teams. Uh, Benham, give us a little sense of what, how Hamas is using the tactics of its anti-tank forces to slow down the Israeli advance in Gaza. And what does the IDF have to, or do we think that they're having everything thrown at them now? Or do we think this is going to um, look even worse if, if, and when, the IDF has to go into southern Gaza? Um, I don't believe this is everything. Um, But I do have concerns. uh, And and I don't believe this is everything. And I do have concerns there could be a heck of a lot more. You know, Hamas has tons of anti-tank weapons, uh, North Korean copies, Russian ones, Soviet ones, Iranian ones. And unlike some of the shorter range rocket stuff, where I think for well under 100 kilometers, uh, these are things that are now kind of foreign inspired, but locally produced. Much of the anti-tank weapons, I believe, were still via smuggled routes or could assume to be more largely based on foreign sources than domestic production. You see, quote unquote, domestic production lines that Hamas touts for some of these RPGs, but they really seem to be more like paint shops or assembly shops than actual raw material production. So I think this is where they still have a bit of foreign dependency. And in, in a sense, they get to pick up the tactics of these foreign fighters. You know, the rush, the way the Russians provided anti-tank weapons to guerrillas around the world in the past, as well as the, the way, you know, Iran has been helping them train in this way. Um, most worrisome in the 2021 war and the May war, you saw anti-tank teams uh, uh, showcase their effectiveness against Israeli civilians, as well as against uh, Israeli soldiers. And what I mean by teams is, let me just draw a parallel you know, when we talk about ammunition, if you want to say like it's it's effective or it's capable, you know, you talk about lethality, but you can talk about precision. 
the precision is for the munition. The accuracy is for the person deploying the uh, munition. Uh, and in this sense, the anti-tank teams becoming more capable. When we talk about that, it's not just that the the systems they have are getting more advanced because really it's been you know four or five different systems that they have, and that's kind of been it. Um, it's the capability to employ these. Uh, as Israeli armor improves, they know to fire uh, you know, in consecutive rounds against the similar position on the side of the tank. Uh, there are things you see in Hamas training videos about how to spring up on APCs, uh, about uh, you know, having multiple people assist the person firing with targeting for those side parts of those uh, Israeli tanks and APCs. So in general, my fear is the more short-term success the Israelis have, given the stockpile of anti-tank weapons, but given the challenges of operating in kind of rubble and urban combat, and again, Bill and you and LWJ and folks have been, been talking about how this happened for the U.S. and Iraq uh, in spades in the 2000s, my fear is, you know, the short-term success may be offset or mitigated or even impeded by medium-term, uh, you know, issues with you may clear an area, but how do you hold on to an area? Uh, and I think anti-tank weapons and the capability of these kind of sneak attack anti-tank teams coming in through tunnels and kind of fire and forget and running away and dispersing will create problems. And you see it in the very, very short term. It hasn't been, you know, the end all be all. But I could see this as a problem also scaling up as Israel moves further south um, and it becomes about, uh, you know, clearing and holding territory. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And you know, one of the one of the things here that's very concerning is something the US hasn't had to deal with in Iraq or Afghanistan is that network of tunnels. Uh, it's it's a force multiplier for anti-tank teams, for IED teams, things uh, you know, sniper teams, the ability to move in that manner. Uh that's where it's really critical for Israel. You know, it doesn't have to just hold the ground, it has to hold below the ground. Well, Benham Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, excellent conversation. Fascinating. I'm sure we could go on, but uh, I think we've hit an hour right about now. And uh, it's been a great conversation. Let's get you back on soon, Benham. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Joe. Uh, it's a pleasure, both of you, uh, to share this virtual mic and uh, just keep an eye on what's going on in the region because uh, everyone is following the LWJ reporting and podcast analysis, uh, the facts coming out. So thank you guys for what you do. Thank you, Benham. Thanks, Joe. And thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. A reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again. We'll see you all again soon.